You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. Most enterprises use disparate systems to manage spend. The result? A reactive manual approach. CFOs and controllers, you deserve better. You deserve a unified spend platform from Brex. Brex makes it easy to proactively control spend with cards, spend management, travel, and bill pay in one place. You can create budgets with controls built in, track and adjust in real time to keep teams accountable, and automate compliance to close the books faster. Ready to control your spend with one unified platform? Visit Brex.com. Well, hello and welcome back to Why I'll Never Make It. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and on the podcast today with me is Charlotte Cohn. And she'll be sharing her journey from the opera world into the theater world and the things she learned about herself along the way. So it was, a, it was also met with a lot of suspicion. Like, you are an opera singer, but what else can you do? Yeah. Which was something that I had to do a great deal of fighting against. Today is my third in a series of episodes for Women's History Month. So far, I've had an actress and producer, a composer and music director. And today we'll be featuring an artist who has one of the most unique stories I've had on the podcast. Like many of the creatives featured here on the podcast, Charlotte is someone who has gone in many different directions in her artist's path. Actress, director, producer, even some co-writing along the way. She's been on stage and on screen, as well as behind the scenes. But something that makes Charlotte unique is her path getting to all of these creative outlets. One way that certainly makes her unique is the fact that she started out as an opera singer. Her love of classical music was forged at a very young age growing up. And this talent and experience even led to her Broadway debut. But what makes her really stand out is what she did before any of these artistic endeavors took over her life. She was born in Denmark to Jewish parents who eventually moved their family to Israel. And while mandating military service is not exactly uncommon around the world, Israel is one of the few countries in the world with a mandatory military service requirement for women. Now, women have been taking part in Israel's military before and since the founding of the state in 1948, fulfilling various roles within the ground forces, the Navy, the Air Force. And it was in 2000 when the Equality Amendment to the Military Service Law was added, stating, the right of women to serve in any role in the IDF is equal to the right of men. And as of 2011, 88% of all the roles in the Israel Defense Forces are open to female candidates, and there can be women found in approximately 69% of those positions. But only about 4% of women are in combat positions, like infantry, artillery gun service, uh, fighter pilots, and tank crews. And that is where Charlotte Cohn served. She was a tank commander in the Israeli army. And it is there that we begin our conversation. I find your story very interesting because you were born in Denmark. Mm -hmm. You were raised in Israel. Yep. And so I am so curious because you served in the Israeli army. I sure did. And I have not interviewed anyone who's been in the military. (laughs) This might be the only time you right, venture. Right. It might be. It might be. <laughs> From what I understand, that that's it's like an expected thing that a lot yes, of people serve. It's in mandatory the, right. for uh, in my day and age for women. It was two years, and for men three. Okay. Uh, but I served five years because you loved because, it so much because of temporary insanity, as I'd like to say. <laughs> yes, I mean there were there were some family circumstances, and and also I just didn't know what I was going to do with my life, and I also had a great amount of responsibility. I didn't hate it. I was really into what I was doing. Loving it is going too far, but, but you I was were good re- at it. But I was good at it, and I was a I was a commander in a, a tank commander training base down south. How about that? So I was a commanding officer in that base. I was one of eight women with 2,000 men. Yeah. Hilarious. <laughs> and I was, uh, I really enjoyed it. So, you know, as a, an officer at the time, you know, you commit to like six months and then you keep adding. Mm-hmm. So I kept signing on and signing on. And eventually I was transferred into the intelligence. And that's all I'm going to say about that. 
<laughs> right, because you'd have to kill me if you and said anymore. Yeah, I would have to, and all your <laughs> listeners are going to be like, oh, my God, how exciting. Right? And the thing is, you know you know the pressure points. You know how to kill me quickly. I, so I, I, I kind of then, forgot, but I can be reminded. <laughs> it's, it's been like, a while. It's like instinct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So coming from this military background, so mm. you stayed in five years mm. trying to figure out when did that light hit you? You know what? I'm going to act. <laughs> <laughs> Let me go from the tanks to some singing. Right. No, I started singing actually uh, classical music when I was 12. We were a very sort of uh, musical family. We, it was me and three older sisters, and we all sang. We were Orthodox Jewish, and mm-hmm. Friday night, singing around the table, blah, 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 and it sort of evolved, and we became like the singing quartet, me and my sisters, and we would sing like around the neighborhood. Like we were the Cone Sisters. I oh, kid you not. I love it. Yeah. And so it was really like a delightful thing that we just did together. Were you just singing Jewish songs or all we kinds of songs? We were singing all kinds kinds of uh we were singing all kinds of stuff uh danish sort of folk songs and hebrew songs no it was a little bit of it we were modern orthodox let's not go crazy we were like you know the knitted yarmulkes and we were we were danish so we were a little bit you know well-rounded in that respect not Uh completely crazy as i'd like to say we weren't fanatic about our religion at all but we were singing and then so i had singing in my life and then i joined a children's choir that was the representative choir of Israel at the time. So we would perform everywhere, like the president's house and Yad Vashem and any big event, like big occasion. We were the ones. And then we toured like Europe and stuff. And I became the soprano soloist. Yeah. Okay. So I had that experience from the age of 12 until 18. And then I went into the army. And I think for a while I was like, you know, forgot about that because the sense of obligation that I had to serve in the military was was greater than that. But slowly as time went by, I was like, remember when I used to sing and I was an artist and I just, I started missing it more and more. So it wasn't about uh, acting specifically. It was about performing opera, which was like my lifelong sort of dream. Uh, so, I, so when you would go back to your barracks, you would be playing opera? You would still listen to yeah, it? Yeah, I would listen you... to it and think about it. And I fell in love with it because my mom took me to the movie of La Traviata. Mm, and I was okay. like, wait a second, I want to do that. And yeah. the dresses and the, oh my God, it was all like over the top amazing. And I just loved it. And opera, as you might know, has a really high sort of, it's very revered in Europe. Yes. So I grew up with my dad playing Carmen on, you know, vinyl. Like, that's what we heard in the oh, house. Okay. I didn't grow up with uh, musical theater at all. Like, till this day, people will mention musical theater, like certain shows, and I'll be like, what's that? And they'll be like, well, did you fall out of a tree? No, I'm, <laughs> I'm in musical theater, and my husband makes fun of me all the time. He, he's like singing a song. I'm like, what, what is that? But is yeah. that from Hamilton? He's like, yeah. no, it's not from Hamilton. Like, like, <laughs> not I just, everything <laughs> is from Hamilton. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm very embarrassed sometimes because I'm like, uh, I don't get the reference and people have to... But that's what I grew up with is opera. So that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an opera singer. So when I finished the army, I got on a plane two weeks later and came to New York. And the original plan was that I'm here for a year studying with this famous uh, teacher and getting as ready as I could and going back and doing the European audition tour. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, I don't know about that. But opera singers, yeah, they go to Europe and you sort of audition for many houses because in Europe you can actually make a living in op- as an opera singer. Right. I mean, you can do it here too. It's a little harder. Probably in New York, but I don't know about many other places. Oh, you in, can, in, yeah. Really? People have to travel in America. To, well, that's yeah. true, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and opera is so like you do one or two shows and then you go to the next town. You know, it's a yeah. different situation than what we're used to, which is like the eight shows a week. What fascinates me about opera is that basically you know your book of 40 or 50 right, shows right. and then you just go do them as opposed to come in, rehearse for four right, weeks. and learning something new. And not, not, I mean, this is sort of a side thing, but I was really baffled by the fact that there were small, and some of the big ones too I've heard, uh, small opera houses where they give you the book and you look at the staging in the book and then you come in and you do the show, 
Like no, but there's no rehearsal. No direction, no rehearsal. No. Just read. You and look do. at the book and you say, "Oh, here I walk, stage right, stage left." You kneel, you stand on a chair, and so forth. Yeah. Wow. Correct. Yeah. But the thing is, there's only you know you have your front five in your audition pieces. You know you have your French and English and German and you know. And uh, and they will you come in and you sing one and then they ask you for one or two more. So I've done a few of those and I was really into it in the beginning, mm-hmm. and then very quickly the dream of what it was uh, compared to the reality of what it was was very um, disappointing. Yeah, what was that wake up call? When did you realize it wasn't what, uh, what you thought? Well, I did some like young artist programs and I did some opera. It, it, it's you know. The politics of that world was really... Like, my teacher wasn't in the clique of teachers. And I was, I was like, 23. And people were talking to me about, well, if you work with him, we're not going to hire you. Like, like, straight to my face. It oh. wasn't even a... And, you know, he was very controlling. I'm not going to say his name, but he was very... He was a little bit of almost... Now I know, like, he would brainwash his students. Like, it's either me or you're never going to sing, you know, kind of a thing, which I just... It's horrible. But at the time, he was doing a lot of good for me, and my voice was really going very far. But that whole thing, every time I ran into the same thing, I would come into a program, and they'd be like, who are you studying with? And I would say his name, and immediately people would be like, well... We don't want to. <laughs> we so don't want to go for. It. Yeah, and and it's more than that. I I'm really interested in storytelling, and that's I've not found... exactly the first and foremost when it comes to opera. No, yeah. and sadly, I think it's starting to change. But back when I was doing it, which is now, I mean, twenty years ago, it was it was not the case. You had to sound like a certain way and you had to move a certain way to me it became vocal gymnastics if you know what i mean yeah and i'm not interested in that i was interested in the emotional journey and the plot line and all these things which people were like "Mm, i don't don't care about that while the voices of opera singers have long been lauded as majestic and beautiful and elegant i mean filling large venues with thousands of people without the use of a microphone Charlotte is right. There has also been the complaint that this voice, this sound, has been the main focus and acting has kind of fallen by the wayside. It's been difficult for singers or people in the opera world to understand that acting is as much a technique as singing. This, according to Donna D. Vaughn, Artistic Director of the Opera Programs at the Manhattan School of Music. In an interview for the Washington Post, she said, quote, I find that there are very few singers who actually have the discipline or take the time to learn what acting is about, because there is so much emphasis on the sound of the voice and singing technique. She goes on to say, In the world of theater, it's something to be able to create a character who's different from what you are. Look at someone like Meryl Streep who transforms herself. I don't see that happening in opera. In fact, Greg Sandow, a music critic and composer, says that there's no real emotional exchange between two singers doing a scene together in opera. There's no genuine exchange of energy, as you would see in a film or in a play. And that singers just move around too much. They do too much with their arms, making faces and mugging to the audience. For example, in the Met Opera's production of Rossini's Armida, Sandow complains that the legendary and iconic Renee Fleming was mugging and gesticulating more than she should. In an article entitled Opera Singers Can't Act, Fact or Fallacy, London-based director Alastair Kitchen notes that a good composer will furnish a singer with many clues about the psychology and inner workings of a character, purely in the, the tone and inflection of the music written. But it can be all too easy to be seduced by this musical cadence into making gestures that don't resemble real-life gestures at all. And when that happens, then the audience will notice. They'll cease to see a character in action, but rather just a singer emoting, or as we call it in musical theater, vocally masturbating, which is at its best unconvincing and at its worst is frightfully dull and sometimes irritating. But as Charlotte mentioned, 
It has certainly gotten better over the years, and Renee Fleming herself has gone on beyond the opera world and has done Broadway plays and musicals and even been featured in films. In fact, her most recent foray in Broadway was in the musical revival of Carousel, for which she received a Tony nomination for Best Featured Actress. But this transition for opera singers to other forms of performing has certainly not been easy. Nine years ago, British baritone William Schimmel was cast opposite Academy Award winner Juliette Binoche in the film Certified Copy. Schimmel found it both intimidating and daunting to be in an acting role opposite such an esteemed actress. But he also found the process rewarding. He says, quote, It's changed the way I do all of my opera. I pare down. I do as little as I can. What I think is necessary to make the character clear. Anything else is extraneous. Even those performers coming into musical theater find there to be a learning curve. One of the best examples of this is in the well-known musical South Pacific, where the role of Emile de Beck is often cast by an opera singer. David Pitzinger is a baritone who was cast in the role, and of his experience with the show South Pacific, he says... Quote, I don't ever want to go back to the way I used to do or approach an opera. And so it was this process of acting and reacting, the storytelling, as Charlotte puts it, that led her to pursue other paths. So I was like, well, what else can I do? And at the time I was studying, I, was, um, I got a, uh, a student visa and I was studying at the new school. And I was sort of doing... Yeah, I, I majored in teaching English as a second language and, you know, was doing my classes on the side. Uh, and then I saw these hooligans in the cafeteria one day and I was like, I wonder who they are. They seemed really fun. And they were the acting, the MFA acting. The theater kids. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, they look like fun. I want to sit with them. <laughs> and that's when I thought, oh, I should, I should apply for my, for my MFA at the new school, which was the actor studio. Right. Uh, drama now, school. Now, did it seem like a step down to do N- No, not musicals? at all. No, not at all. Okay. In fact, it seemed very... I, I felt relief because okay. it's so much easier. <laughs> <laughs> but really, yeah. it wasn't even about singing. I want to divorce myself from singing. I didn't want to sing anymore. I just wanted to be an actor. Just wanted to do straight acting. I yeah. was like a bit... I was turned my nose up. Uh, like a snob and I was like I am not going to sing anymore I'm an actor I'm an actor I'm a real actor and you know the actor's studio it's like a, it's serious business because oh, it's the method and right yeah so they, talk about taking it seriously yeah. and you are an actor I'm there. an actor a Meisner technique and all that yeah. and, and I don't know if you know this but when you graduate from that program you immediately get the status of finalist and then usually you have several steps before that to become a finalist. You have to audition, get a callback, another callback. I actually don't know how many steps there are, but there are a few. Yeah. And then finalists, you get to be a finalist, and then that's a final audition in front of the most important people, I guess, that they have in there. I actually don't know who was out there because you can't see them. You just come on stage, <laughs> I, you audition, and you leave, and you're like, nah, I don't know I who it was. I have auditioned for Actor Studio twice. You have? I did. And what happened? Well, I, d- I did a scene. It was actually uh, a friend of mine got the audition, and then he needed someone a, to do the yeah, scene with. So I did the scene, and we both got called back. Ooh. So I was just there to help him. But then we both got called and back. I called you back. So, so then he chose another scene, so he needed another partner. So I was like, well, I'm called back. So I enlisted a friend of mine, and she and I did a scene from Church and State. No we did. way! Yes. When did you do that? So this would have been probably a year and a half ago. I mean, it's recent. Yeah. Because Church and State is yeah. recent. Yeah. Oh my God, that's amazing. And so, I mean, I felt good with the scene that we did, but then nothing came out. So they just said, thank you for coming. Maybe now's not the right time. Come back to us in a year. That that, whole that thing. kind of a thing. Well, no. you should. You should come back because the the, the studio. I mean, I love the studio. Oh, a believe lot of me. The, I mean, just the, the cred that you get by yeah. getting in in that program would yeah. be amazing. Yeah. yeah. So I got in after my finalist audition, and uh, I was like, "Oh, I'm the actors of actors, right? I'm a member of the actors <laughs> studio. I know it all." <laughs> but uh, no, I really prided myself on that. And when so when I got called in, and this is sort of bizarre how it all happened. I was in my second year of my MFA when I got the call to come in an audition for La Boheme on Broadway. And I said, I don't sing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> what a turn. 
scared I was. Just, I was literally like, "What?" I think about it now, and I was like, "Oh my what was, god!" Yeah. And then Stupid the woman said, the casting director said, "She was like Charlotte, it's Baz Luhrmann directing," and I said, "Who is Baz Luhrmann?" <laughs> I was like, oh my God, I'm such an asshole. And so then right around, like I had an audition and then a callback and then Moulin Rouge came out. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to Moulin Rouge and sitting and thinking, oh shit. (laughs) This is Baz Baz Luhrmann. I didn't know. I was such a, like, you know, children learn from this. Do your research. I mean, because I'd heard of him from Romeo and Juliet. And that was kind of weird and funky in of itself. But I only knew him as a film director. And then Moulin Rouge. And Strictly Ballroom. Like, which, which is well, just... See, I, but I didn't know Strictly Ballroom oh until God, after Moulin Rouge. Right. Then after Moulin Rouge, that's when I... You start Googling and... Yeah, like, it's what one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, and so I love brilliant. it. And so that's why I knew... I mean, because it's very theatrical, very stage-oriented kind of mm-hmm. how, how it's done. So last season for the podcast, I interviewed Ben Davis, uh, who was also a part yes. of Love O'Ham. So you know him quite yes, well. Yes, I do. I love Ben. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that process, because he, he had a crazy audition for that. How was your audition for well, that? Well, it was, it was crazy because, again, I hadn't sung in a few years at that point. Oh, wow. Like, I stopped. I completely stopped. I was like, I'm not singing anymore. I'm right. just sorry. You know, so it's been, it, it was like three years that I hadn't, no lessons, no nothing, right? And uh, the casting director was like, well, get a lesson and get it back. You know, <laughs> come on in. And then it was just for the casting. And then it was casting and some other people. And then... And then there were some things that happened. I don't know if Ben told you, but there was uh, 9-11 happened in the middle there. Oh, right. And then there was some kind of issue with, I don't know, the rumor was that the producers didn't agree on something, or it took them a really long time to find the people they really wanted. So I had what seemed to have been the lower amount of callbacks, which was like four or five at this point, I can't remember, but some people had like 14. Oh my God. Because at one point they were like, "We forgot what you look like. Come on back to yeah, remind us." Can you still us. sing? Can you still? Do you still look the same? Right, right. And uh, and uh, so by the time I had like my callback with Baz, I was so nervous because I don't know about you, but to me it's like quick and done is better. Yeah. I like to come in and do my thing and leave. I don't like the auditions where you have to wait outside for like an hour. Yeah. Or you have the final callback day when they're like mix, uh, mix and match, and they're right, like, the "Okay, mix and match, yeah. I'm just gonna put you together. I'm gonna p- partner you up." And I can't stand those. It makes me very anxious if I have to wait outside for a long time. That day, that day, I was beside myself, and I got the note. I kept getting the note from casting that I need to be more feminine, and I would always go to auditions, and it kind of played to my favor for a long time because I didn't realize this is me this is me not knowing how things work in a way that made made it really work in my favor right because I would always wear pants and I would always wear uh, like a like a black sort of tank top with a sheer sleeve thing on top of it okay like a, like a button down and I looked very like it was sort of a variation of what I used to wear in the army <laughs> 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 and I hate heels. Because I'm already 5'11", but I would wear these bulky boots. And so I came in looking like a fierce badass to to every audition, no matter what it was. And I tell you, I booked so many... So many jobs like that. Because they were scared of you. <laughs> they were like, we better give her the job. Right, right. She, she might, She's going to come back us. and find She'll us. She'll find us. No, but literally, uh, what's her face in uh, The Boys from Syracuse? Like, falling in love with love? Like, what? Why not? She's the most feminine, <laughs> needy you're, you're woman. And with boots. And... and I'm like, falling in love. And they're like, all right. All right, all right okay. But that's how I came in. Uh, for Musetta, who's mm-hmm. like all oh, like you know, she's a badass, but she's like you know, boobalicious and all this stuff. Right, right. And I got a, a note from casting: Can you please come in with a dress or a skirt or something, and you know, show your figure? <laughs> and I was like, what? And I decided to go out of my way and get red pants <laughs> instead of black pants. <laughs> I mean, and that I, is more feminine when you're wearing very red feminine. Pants. Oh, and I came in and I was so nervous by the time I got to meet Baz, and. He did this thing in in audition, which is very rare in equity auditions, but this was not equity at the time. This was Agma at the time. Okay. So that was opera. And he came with a 
with a like a little camera mm-hmm. right up in my face like right up in my face and then he would sort of run uh, slowly go around me and i was like what is going on yeah, that is lerman is right in my face yeah, ben gave the same story so he must have done that to all the all finalists all the finalists yeah. yeah and i was like uh okay and he was like and he gave me one of the best quotes um he he said you are dramatically brilliant he's like your choices are dramatically brilliant you, all right that's you good to hear you are an exquisite actress and i was like Burr. all right okay. put that, on, put that you on your website so <laughs> i did but my first website that's what it said that's what it said exquisite. Uh, he must know <laughs> And then I think um, I think there were some issues with my voice that the musical director didn't didn't enjoy. So I ended up in the ensemble, and eventually, because while I was in the show, I worked really hard on my voice. And then they had sort of re auditions for the Amundsen run. Okay. And I became the understudy for Musetta because at that point my voice was like boom. Then, then you, you and, got it back. Yeah, I got it yeah. back. Yeah. And then they were like, oh, and that musical director, our our maestro, actually then ended up casting me as the lead uh, in Happy End at ACT. Okay. So we became like it was completely a a, a one eighty. He was like, oh, you're not ready. Your voice is up. And now he, and now <laughs> he was he, like now he loved giving you. me. And I I um, actually took over for Audra McDonald, who was supposed to be Hallelujah Lil. And she had to back out for like three months before uh, for, I don't know, it, it was health issues. Something happened. And they hired me. My joke is always like, well... If you ever need an African American six time Tony <laughs> winner. You, if you can't get Audra, I'm available. I'm right here. <laughs> Very close. I mean, it's really it's it's on the cusp. It's on the cusp. You, yeah. you, you see us both and you're like, which one is which? It's really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> so La Boheme, you did the, uh, the the tour, right? We did the pre Broadway, which was in San Francisco at the mm-hmm. current, and then we did Broadway for seven months, I believe, and then we did Amundsen for another three or four months, I can't remember. So all in it was like over a year. Yeah. Uh, and it was like, it's crazy for that to be your first job out of school. Well, You're like, that Broadway, show. like it's hard. You know, why is everybody complaining that they can't make it to Broadway? Mm. So humble. Also, because the whole thing was so right up my alley because he... Uh, Baz loves opera. He lo- even when he directs movies, mm-hmm. you can see the opera influence. He loves yeah. the larger than life. You know, he he stays true to the to the honest story, and then he f- adds flourishes and embellishes. Right, mm-hmm. and that is exactly what I love. I love you know. Uh, real small stories that have big sort of elements around them. That's like my favorite type of plays, musicals, what have you. That's what I like. Um, and so, you know, to me, that was the height of it. And Baz, at that time, was really popular. Yeah, he was people, on fire. People was, were yeah. like, and the people coming to see the show, it's like Hamilton uh, of that time. Everybody came to see that show. All the most famous people you can think of. My favorite story was when it was Sunday matinee and Jim Carrey came with his daughter at the time. She was like 16, I think. And we, you know, they always make the announcement backstage. Well, Jim Carrey's here and he wants to meet the cast. So whoever wants to stick around, come meet him on the stage. So we come on the stage and we're sort of hanging out. And and one of the ensemble guys was like, hey, Jim, we're all going to this place that we all used to hang out at after uh, the Sunday matinee. And why don't you come join us? And I was like, Jim Carrey is not going to join us for whatever hooliganism we have planned. And lo and behold, he comes, he brings his daughter and his bodyguard. And we had the best time. Just the fun stuff. And it was that kind of show. So there was a lot of ritzy glitzy around it, you know, that hmm. was that, that is not traditional in a lot of Broadway right, shows. Right. Or any shows, for that matter. But it wasn't just audiences and celebrities that were coming to see La Boheme. Of course, the critics came. One such person was the famed New York critic Charles Isherwood, who, in writing for Variety magazine, says that Lerman has the gift, rare in any genre, of pointing up the artifice in art without detracting from its emotional impact. But something specific that Isherwood points out is that 
Quote, there is the unquestionable dramatic vibrancy that results from singers being given an ample rehearsal period as well as a long run to work their way into the hearts of the characters. Lerman's performers largely avoid the generic gestures opera singers often employ to make an impact in the cavernous opera house. But in the relative intimacy of a Broadway theater, subtle effects, the plays of emotion, can be deeply affecting. So with La Boheme, Charlotte found something that wasn't just the voice. It wasn't just gesticulating a character. It was something that had storytelling and emotion driving the plot. So it was like, so my first experience was that. And I was like, where do you go from there? I, I was just about to say, so once that show ended and you're like, just back to auditioning, it must have been quite a, a drop. Well, in- what, what happens is, well, I was auditioning and that was totally kosher on my end because I was a nobody. Like nobody knew anything about me. And all of a sudden I was this girl whose first job was on Broadway in that project. But a lot, but remember, a lot of the people in that show were bona fide, you know, opera singers. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was also met with a lot of suspicion. Like, you are an opera singer, but what else can you do? Yeah. Which was something that I had to do a great deal of fighting against. Because I, remember, I was a real actor. And right. I wanted to do straight theater, and nobody would see me for that. It's weird. I think it's still the same today. Yeah. There is that delineation, even casting directors who, who should have this open mind and realize we can do a lot of things, have this like, yeah. okay, we have our play people, we have our musical yeah. people. It's and, typecasting. And except for like Nathan Lane, yeah. you know, then, then no one can do both. Right. And look at what he had to do to just be acknowledged that he can do both, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. Or, or all three things for that matter. So I got a lot of musical theater auditions, which was fine, which was great, which I didn't mind at all, especially if it was in my vocal range, which is a soprano legit soprano it was when they started wanting me to 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 belt that was like i don't do that or that mix or that folk or that all that stuff that i was like i uh, i was hired for one show which was nine at north shore music theater that the guy really wanted to hire me oh he's gonna hate me i can't remember his name at the moment but he really wanted me in the show and I didn't quite fit any of the ladies that, you know, the, the three main ladies. And he was like, can you belt? And I was like, not well. You know, I'm in the audition room. I'm always honest. Yeah. I'm like, no, you want a belter? And then I realized, anyway, they hired me. I was Stephanie Necrophorus. They put me in like a onesie and I oh. had a whip. Okay. It was okay. like the first production after the Broadway production. And, and, it, and she has a patter song. The highest note she has is a B flat. I I managed, but it was, you know, I was like, I don't like this. I don't like how it feels. I don't like what it's doing to me. I don't mm. like singing in here. Yeah, I yeah. like beautiful, big, rolling vibrato. I don't want to do any of this, you know. And then it and then it became very clear to me as time went by that people really look at me and say, Oh, we want you to belt, you know. Even when I went, I went in for Come From Away, I can't even. That's not the style. So I finally, I was like, ugh, whatever. And then I sort of pushed for a long time to just get straight acting gigs, which would make me really happy. And that happened a few times, which made me really happy. <clears throat> I did a play out of Premier Stages in New Jersey mm-hmm. and uh, uh, a new play called Las Cruces. And it was such a great experience. I loved it. And... I would do straight theater anytime, anywhere. And there's such an that. ease after coming from the musical theater world. Well, you know, you have to sort of worry about your your instrument and, mm-hmm. and behave. And I mean, remember, I did, after my daughter was born, I did a play when she was three months old at Center Stage Baltimore. It was a straight play. But my character sang in it. So I had lines, but I also sang in it. So it was kind of, and it was an Israeli playwright. So they were like, oh, she falls into this column, check, this column, check, let's bring her in, right? So it was one of those things, but it was a play and it was amazing actors in it. David Margulies was in it, like really top of the line. 
and little old me. Um, but was it a tough journey to be recognized and seen as just a straight actor? Oh, as absolutely. Opposed to- and not to mention TV and film, where, you know, transferring from the stage to those mediums is challenging. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you something, which is really hilarious and surprising, is that I worked on a soap 16 years ago. And then this year, I booked two TV gigs. 16 years, not a one, not even seen for anything. And then I have a manager now who's amazing. And he's like, let's just try. And all of a sudden, now that I'm middle-aged, I'm like, my stock has gone up. They're like, oh, yeah, we'll take her. That aging lady. We'll bring her in. Yeah, bring that one in. Yeah, and it's amazing. I, I got to the point when I was like, I don't think I know how to do it. I think it's a completely, I'm uncomfortable, the camera's in your face, the reader doesn't even, most of the time they don't even look at you. No, no, they're they, literally they're just they're looking down like and that. then they talk like this and yeah. then they just give their line. Yeah. And, and sometimes they, it's the casting director doing it. I mean, it's just like, it's such a crapshoot, right? Yeah. And then I realized, and someone gave me a great piece of advice, and they said, auditioning for TV is just like playing the lotto. It's very different than theater mm-hmm. theater the, the pool is smaller they know what they're looking for you really have to be top-notch in that specific genre especially for the kind of parts that i go in for it's lottery and if you think about it that way the pressure is off they will choose you because you look this way your hair was this way you i mean it's just no matter what that takes the onus off and i was like oh Ah, okay, then it doesn't matter, you know? And when you take that out of the equation, you don't come in with this like, (gasps) and I also realized, and this is also a good lesson, is the two jobs that I booked this year, I fumbled big time in the audition room. How how so? I just went up on my lines, Mm -hmm. and at one point I was like, ah, forget it. Can we do it again? I just went like, (laughs) ah, forget it. Can I do it again? Yeah. And, And those are the ones I booked. And the ones that I was like perfect and knew exactly what I was going to do, not so much. And there's something about just being you because you is what they want, uh, which is true for all auditions, but, but I find specifically for that. And now more and more of them are like uh, self-tape at home. Is self-taping just the joy of your life as well? No, I think it, I, I know a lot of actors uh, yeah. complain about it, but what I love about it is that I can do it as many times as I want until I get it right. Yeah. But the setup is not fun, and I understand that I have a built-in community here of a husband and a daughter who can help out, but people don't have that. And what do you do? And then you have to go and pay for someone. and a, I mean, it's just like in a room and the right background yeah, and the lighting. Especially in that special oh, in self-tape. Oh. I've done that once for City Center Encores. Okay. I did a self-tape, but I did it at my voice teacher's apartment. Okay. And that was, I mean, that cost me the cost of a lesson. <laughs> yeah. And I got close with that one. But it, it, I, I find that really obnoxious because that means that you have to have the right recording equipment. Yeah, it's all about being able to hear and see the person. Yeah. yeah I mean, th- then it comes down to technical elements that have nothing, nothing to, do to do with, with your acting. talent. No. Yeah. And also you can't have rapport in the room. They don't know, like as a director, I'm always like, then I don't know who you are. I will say that I try to, whenever I do self-tapes, you know, in my slate or something, uh, especially when I'm doing a slate out of town, Mm. I'll talk about where I am and what I'm doing to to at least give uh, some personality. Coming to to you from Minnesota. (laughs) Coming to you live from St. Louis. Thanks for taking this tape. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, I try to give them a little something. But let me just say something, just so I, we're all on the same page. Yeah. I think the job of a really skilled singer is much harder than the job of an actor. Because not only do I you agree. have to deliver <laughs> mm-hmm. the beats and the emotional uh, life and the relationships and the, you know, you have to do it with, within tempo. And you have to be able to sing as well and maintain that instrument as well. And one of my biggest sort of issues with the world of opera, at least what it was in my day, is that they separated, they ha- you know, when you go to the, do these summer programs, they have singing and the movement, blah, 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 and then acting for opera singers. And I said, wait a minute, why can't it just be acting? acting. Why are we, op- what? Uh, and it was very different. It was different than what I know now. And when I work, and I now coach privately, and I work with opera singers, and it's like, I tell them, because this is very important, 70% reality and 30% remember your technique. 
because you can't have them jump in the way that actors do because they will affect the way they're singing. Yeah. And the same with musical theater. You can't go so far in screaming if it's going to really affect your vocal cords in a way. You know what I'm saying. But anyway, right. just for the record, I just <laughs> want to say that it's much harder. Um, now, when did I decide to produce? So this is really interesting. So as you know, um, in the military, I had a lot of responsibility. And I like, I've always loved big picture things. And I love development. And I, I'm a really big, what, what I call a cheerleader, for new and exciting work. I literally, my daughter was four. And until that point, I was like roaming the country with this child. Like, oh, I booked a job like when she was three months old, when she was six months old, when she was nine months old, when she was 14 months old. And there was, and it came to a point where I was doing five different shows in one year. Wow. Yeah. That's a busy year. Bounce and bounce. And it was, it was, and I was on a, uh, I was on a ride, admit, admittingly, that was like, oh, that's Charlotte. She's working all the time. She's hireable. We'll hire her. Yeah. You know, because there is that. They look at your resume. They go, oh, you've been there. Da, 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 and they go, okay, she's, you know, she's hireable. And I literally woke up one day and I was like, I don't think I'd like this. I don't think I like this. Well, the, the traveling or just I didn't the... like acting. Oh. No. And it wasn't just like I despised it and I hated it. It was just like, oh, I don't have the passion for it. I was working all the time and seemingly that's what an actor wants to do. <laughs> and I and one of them was another Broadway show and I hated that one. Hated it. I didn't hate the show. The show was magnificent. I hated my part in it. And I really wanted out. I wanted it to close. I wanted it to be done. And I got my wish. It ran about five weeks. <laughs> Everybody blamed me. It's me. Yeah, right, I right. made that happen. You, you put the jinx on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. No, I really, really hated it. And it was funny because I would come home to Jason every day and he was like, so many people would give the right yeah. arm to be where you are and you are complaining and you live 20 blocks away. You're <laughs> such an <laughs> I really was like not, not happy at all. And I thought, well, and then I, I really woke up one morning. I was like, I don't want, I don't think I want to do this but I love the medium I love theater what else can I do and sort of weirdly like cosmically a friend called me who went to school with me and he said hey I'm producing a show on Broadway would you like to be a co-producer and I said what does that mean yeah <laughs> sure but what does that mean yeah yeah and then I took a bunch of classes through CTI, um, Commercial Theater Institute. Mm -hmm. And uh, the first thing I did was the three-day intensive that they have here in Midtown. And you get to see all kinds of people from all, you know, all di different sections of the, the producing world. There were people from marketing, advertising, non-for-profit, for-profit. And, and I, many people who were like big lead producers, Kevin McCollum was there and Ken Davenport and so on and um, talking about the business of producing and I was just invigorated I was like I can do this this is you know the, what they all talked about was like raising money raising money raising money right and they were like the worst thing that can happen is when you ask and someone says no and I was like well I'm fine with that. I don't have a problem with people saying no to me. I am not afraid to ask people. And it's not asking. It's like allowing them the opportunity to be a part of something, right? right. It's just a mindset. And so I was like, well, I can do this. And I was super excited. I was super ready to go. Right. And that's how that shift happened. Huh. Like I was like, oh, I'm so done with acting. And, uh, and I'm going to do this. I never really let go completely. I never cut the ties with acting because I thought, well... If something comes along that I'm really excited about, but yeah. if I get another audition for Anne Frank, no thanks. You know what I mean? There's, right. there's, there's certain things that I was just like, I'm not interested in that. And I couldn't, in all honesty, you know, stay with my agent and say, well, <laughs> maybe <clears throat> let me keep saying no to things and you keep representing me. That's not, especially in the commercial world where the commercial auditions is all about quantity yeah. and the amount of time that you put in to get ready as a as a chick i mean i don't want to say any better about my male friends but to get my hair and my makeup right. and just right. look for the camera i get that and yeah. it would take so much time out of my day for what would literally take 60 seconds 60 seconds if right that. yeah 
And then the, you know, the SAG after stuff was, was renegotiated at that time. And all of a sudden you didn't make as much money doing it. And mm-hmm. I was like, Mrr. and I had done some commercial work. I did like a Kleenex national that just got me so much money. And that was before they renegotiated. And then now it's not at all the same. So I was like, well, and at that time, you know, my daughter was still young and I still needed time with her. And I just felt like I don't want to do any of that anymore. Yeah. And producing really excited me. And, of course, it didn't live up to everything I thought it was going to be. But um, I thought, in the beginning, I thought I was going to get involved as a co-producer in a big Broadway show that I will not mention. And that was a, a real lesson in what not to do. And I ended up not being involved in that show. And I thought, you know, Was it I'm something not- that you learned to not do or just something that the show itself... There was a show itself issues, and there was issues with me and who I thought was my partner, and uh, that whole relationship didn't work out. It just doesn't work out. You have to find your people, you know? Yeah. And and, and that's okay, and and I learned from it, and I move forward. I think you only learn by doing uh, in the world of producing, and so... I then was a co-producer on an off-Broadway show called Rated P for Parenthood, which I really loved and was a big fan of and raised a ton of money for. And then it came and went like the wind. And I was like, okay. Because in that occasion, too, there was some kind of an agreement that, and again, you learn by doing, where the lead producers didn't actually include us in any, like, usually you have ad meetings and the co-producers get to sit in on those and we were not included in Mm. those. And I thought, well, you know what? Next time I do this, I'm the lead. (laughs) <laughs> I just decided like, I'm going to be in charge I, 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 I want to be in the charge. room you want to be in the room I want to be in the room and I was like and I knew that Off-Broadway was the world that I can lead produce in because uh, you know Broadway is a whole different mm-hmm. rigmarole right and uh, and I understood that and that would have been a, too big for me anyway to start out right away and then I turned around and in my own backyard there's a writer <laughs> that I'm married to <laughs> what do you know and what do you know and he wrote this brilliant play called Handle With Care, and I thought, well, I'll produce it, and I'll also be in it, because that's smart. <laughs> but he wrote because, it for me. And Handle With Care is actually when we met each other for the first time. Was that, was yeah, that, was that yeah, right? That, that, was, that was when we met each other. My, my memory is very short. Well, I mean, Were you, did you audition for Josh? Yeah, yeah, because oh. I, I came in and auditioned, and in the first audition, it was... I think Jason was in the room and the, the casting director. Oh, I then, wasn't there? Right. And then for the callback, then right. you were there. That's right. And, and then I read opposite you. And then, then I think I read with someone else. Like It was that mix and match thing. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. It, But that, that day, I mean, talk about a crazy day. I literally flew in because I was on tour at the time. I flew in that, it was either the night before. And then I did that audition and literally I had to run from that audition to the airport to then get back on tour. So I, I literally just kind of made it work. Oh, my and, God. But, but because the things of, we go right, through, but right? But because of that, I, I hadn't really, like, been able to prepare for the audition as much. As, like, I feel like my first audition was was killer compared to my callback audition. So it was just one of those things. It, it was hilarious because I think several of you were like that. The guy we ended up hiring had a three-month-old baby at home. So he wasn't sleeping at all. So he came in and he was like, like, I'm sorry, I have a newborn baby. I can't (laughs) function. Uh, So, you know, we were like, we had a slew. Like, there were a few of you who looked a little, a little, (laughs) a little little off. And you were like, I hope I did okay. I can't remember. Yeah, so that, so Hannah with Care was my first uh, real producing experience. Right, because you, you were the head. I you, was the lead producer. The I, had a, I had a producing partner, but I was also in it. And never, never, never will I ever do that again. That was dumb. It's you like have, acting and directing, which you cannot do in a stage production. You can do it in, in, in film, film and TV, but you, you can, can't do it on stage. No. Yeah. So the minute I was on stage, I had to completely focus on what was going on on stage. And yeah. I was on stage for the majority of that play. Right, the show's I kind had of, five minutes where I wasn't. <laughs> And during that one, I would answer emails of investors and yeah, (laughs) yeah. I was like backstage working, and we were still raising money during the previews. Is my favorite in quotes time because I was in rehearsals all day. Then we would do the show, 
And then I would go wine and dine people after the show, like at 10, 11 p.m. at night. And also I wrote it with my husband. So I was writing on it, and I produced it, and I acted in it, and I was like, what else do you want? (laughs) Little on me, not Broadway. (laughs) It was was the hardest job I've ever done. I bet. And I think, you know, and this is considering I've given birth and I've uh, been a commander in the Israeli army, the hardest job is producing. Because because as a lead producer, not a co-producer, but a lead producer, you do everything. Yeah. And you, it is an all-consuming job because it never ends. It, there's a lot that goes into it. And I think actors really, as actors, we don't know any no, of this. No, no, no. I mean, it really is. That table is more than just divides us in the audition room. It divides responsibility. It divides, yeah. divides knowledge yeah. of what really goes on. That's why I love these kind of interviews with people mm-hmm. who have bridged the gap or, mm-hmm. or on one side or the other. It really is enlightening yeah. to know that the actor, while I love actors' equity and they, and they push for us and they should, but at the same time, we are one piece of a very large puzzle. And so there's a lot more that goes into just... I remember thinking, well, I know what a direct, director does. Director directs, actors act, playwrights write. What does a producer do? Right. I used to think, honestly, that there are these people who just write checks. And even co-producers who are not like independently wealthy and just write checks, co-producers work really hard at going out and finding investors and they don't get paid unless the show recoups. Hmm. I mean, I know someone who has been a co-producer on over 10 Broadway shows, and only one of them has recouped and ran for one more week and then closed. (laughs) So, like, the amount of money that he made is minuscule, and all the hours, and you you wine and dine people, and it's all on your own dime. I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. A lot of work goes into this. I think it's important for actors to know and appreciate Mm -hmm. the amount of work that goes into this. And so while Handle with Care was my first introduction to Charlotte Cohn and her husband, Jason O'Dell Williams, who was the writer of Handle with Care, it wasn't until a few years later that I first got to actually work with both of them. And that was for the play Church and State, which had an off-Broadway run at the New World Stages here in Midtown, New York. Now, Church and State was tackling the issue of politics, of religion, and of guns in America. Three very hotbed issues that putting them together made for a very dramatic and emotional play. The basic gist is a senator running for re-election, and there's only four people in the whole show. The senator, his wife, campaign manager, and then various other small parts played by one male actor. Now, I was cast as the male understudy, so I covered both the senator role as well as those various bit parts. In a particular point in the show, the senator is delivering his speech, and he starts listing all of the various places where gun violence is happening, specifically in schools. And it was through this experience that... I got to see firsthand because I was a part of the cast, but at the same time behind the scenes as well. And so between the cast changes and the eventual closing of the show, which was earlier than they thought it was going to be, I got to see the various roles that a producer plays in keeping a show together. Since Church and State closed off-Broadway, it certainly had a life of its own and has been published and is now done regionally around the country. And one such production, Charlotte, got to direct. I wouldn't say that it was less work, but it was different kind of work and work that I like a lot more. (laughs) (laughs) It it, it fed your soul a lot more. Oh my God. I mean, that was when I was like, well, I knew, I sort of had an inkling before that happened, but I sort of knew that that's where I belong. In this business, directing is where I belong. I love every aspect of it. I love figuring it all out and all the pre-pro that goes into it. I love planning it. I love the visual of it and and seeing what the stage will look like and working with designers. I just, uh, all of that feeds my soul to no end. And we did a Berkshire Theater group. It used to be festival, now it's group. And and, um, uh, Kate McGuire, who is the artistic director, is one of the best, best people in this business that I've ever worked with she was just down with the show from the beginning and took my advice as a producer she did talkbacks every night every Every night night after the show there was a talkback yeah 
and directing and working with the actors was just such a uh, it was such a delight it was so fun I worked uh-huh. really hard and coming in knowing everything that I know about the play you know being with it from from the moment that it was written and uh, working with my husband on it uh, as a producer and knowing everything that we went through in New York and seeing the things that I that I liked and things that I thought could be done better and that, you know what long time ago I think it was Barbara Freitag actually who produced Memphis on Broadway and she said I know that a project is good if I can see it eight shows a week and not get tired Mm-hmm. Church and State, that's how I felt. Yeah. I could watch it every time, anytime. And I've seen many productions since. And every time I watch it, I'm like, oh my God, there comes this moment. And I love seeing the audience and how they right. react. And the speech of Sarah at the end and the speech of the senator at the end. You know, like all of those things gets me going every time. My heart is like pounding. I just love it. And mm-hmm. I was like, that is a true testament. Because if you get excited about something and the first time you see it, second time you see it, and then you're like, mm, I'm good. I don't need to see it again. You know that that's not it. As yeah. a producer, as a lead producer, where so much energy, money, sweat and tears goes into it, don't get involved unless it does that for you. And directors, I mean, <laughs> to compare, you're there for whatever, three, four weeks. You put in the show up and then you're like, bon voyage, have a on. good time. But the, the thing about it that was great in the Berkshires is that she kept me around. She's like, after opening, and then I was just able to enjoy it. Right, Because right. I did all those talkbacks. Ah. It was remarkable. I it was bet. one of I the best experiences of my life. Well, this has been a good experience talking to you. You as well. <laughs> did I talk enough? Oh my God, I talked your ear off. You're going to edit no. half of it out. You're like, not important. <laughs> no, no but, but thank you so much. Thank this you, Patrick. Well, thank you for joining me and Charlotte today on the podcast. For more information on her, you can look at the show notes for ways you can follow and keep up with her work. You can follow her on Instagram at Charlotte Cohn. Don't miss the next episode where I will be asking Charlotte the final five questions and I'll be doing a profile on this week's female Broadway pioneer, Vinette Justine Carroll, a playwright, actress, and theater director who was the first African-American woman to direct on Broadway. I'm your host, Patrick Oliver-Jones, and let's get together on the next episode as we talk more about why I'll never make it. You know, I must admit, I enjoy putting these little Easter eggs at the end of the episode. And in this one, Charlie and I talked a lot about church and state, since, of course, that's where we met. That's where our connection lies. And she got to talking about how a production in Pennsylvania was slightly different than the production she did in the Berkshires. And at one point, one of the characters lists, makes a list of all the places with mass shootings You've and that list it. has grown by at least at least twice its size. So the other day we went down to uh, Pennsylvania where they had a, a production of it, and they've ad- they added that shooting in Texas that happened mm-hmm. that day with the guy in the you know on the highway, and it, it, it's unbelievable. Like it's that de- so in that sense the play keeps being current unfortunately, to all of yeah. us, yeah. because people keep... So in that, only that section is, is changed. Hmm. Uh, but everything else is the way you remember it, because you were in it. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I went on for, uh, for Tom, which is a I the, saw the multi-character. You. you were phenomenal. <clears throat> I laughed so much when you went on. It was great. Well, that's what I tried to bring to, to that character, because he does so many goofy things. So I was just like... <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! And the t-shirt. The they, t-shirt didn't didn't fit, it, but it didn't was fit awesome. At all. But at the same time, it kind of fit that character because oh, it was so just like much. too small, and he's just like squeezing into a t-shirt because he loves his job. He just wants to be an intern. It was great, and it was yeah. one of those things when I was like, "Oh yeah, Patrick is the." Is, is like me. He's a character actor in a leading man's body. Right, right. right. And you're like, please know that yeah. I can do anything. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it, it's really nice whenever I get to kind of be outside of just, uh, you know, the, the leading romantic man or whatever, which it, it yes. comes with beautiful songs usually. Sure. But at the same time, when I get to just like put on like a wacky wig or yeah. a mustache and then wear funky clothes and, yeah. and do the it's character fun. song. It's just fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Those are my favorites too. 
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 